This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Obamacare is safe from a legal challenge at the Supreme Court once again. By a vote of 7-2, to two, the justices rejected the third Republican attack on the landmark law that provides health insurance to 20 million people. The opinion did not deal with the merits of the case, but rather ruled the challengers didn't have the right to sue because they weren't injured by the now toothless individual mandate. This lack of standing was an issue Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Clarence Thomas brought up in the oral arguments by posing several hypotheticals. Let's say Congress uh, passes a law saying everybody has to mow their lawn once a week. Uh, And they even make a lot of findings about why that's a good thing. You know, it makes the country look neater. You get fresh air if you have to do that. Supports the lawnmower business. Um, And uh, but the fine for violating it is zero zero dollars. Do they have standing? I assume that in most places there is no penalty for wearing a uh, face mask or a mask during COVID. Um, But there is some degree of opprobrium if one does not wear it in certain settings. Joining me is Neil Kinkoff, a professor of constitutional law at the Georgia State University College of Law. Why a seven-month wait to hand down this decision, which is seven to two and just 16 pages long? That's a great question. I wish I knew the answer. Maybe someday the conference notes will tell us what was really going on. Because you're right, it's a seven to two decision and it's on a technicality, really, on standing. And so why did it take so long? And you can only imagine the justices were actually going back and forth about the merits and then decided to instead resolve it on this jurisdictional ground. Yeah, so tell us why the court decided as it did. So it ruled that the parties who brought the case didn't have the authority, the jurisdiction, to bring the case. So in order to bring a case, you have to be an actually injured party. So it can't be that you just think Obamacare is unconstitutional or you think the government is doing something that violates the law. That doesn't allow you to bring a lawsuit. You have to be actually personally harmed by the government's actions. And then if you are, you can say, I'm harmed and the government is acting unconstitutionally. Court, please order a remedy. And so what the court said in this case is that the plaintiffs, there were two individuals and a set of 12 states. So the Supreme Court said, you haven't been directly harmed by anything the federal government has done. And if you pay attention to what the substance of the case was about, it's easy to see how that was the case. What they were complaining about is that Congress in 2017 amended Obamacare to remove the provision imposing a penalty on anyone who didn't buy the required insurance. And so what you had was this odd situation of two individuals who were complaining that there's a requirement that they buy insurance, but there's no actual penalty or anything that happens to them if they don't go ahead and do it. So the court said, you're not actually harmed. And then the states made an even odder argument saying that their costs of running their state would go up because they have to run these insurance programs that cover people under Obamacare. The problem is once you eliminate the penalty for not signing up for it, it's hard to see how the state is being harmed. In fact, if that's their concern, you would think removing the penalty helps them because now people who don't want it aren't going to sign up for it to avoid a penalty. So if anything, it would reduce the state's cost. 
So the Supreme Court said as to both of these parties, you're not personally injured. You're like anybody else who's just out there complaining that they don't like Obamacare. Because you don't have a direct personal stake in this, you are not allowed to bring this lawsuit. The chief wrote the opinions of the court in the other Obamacare decisions and got a lot of criticism from conservatives. Is it surprising that he handed off this decision to Justice Breyer to write? So it may be that the chief has decided that he's gotten enough blowback from Obamacare. That may have something to do with it. The chief, because he's in the majority, would be the one who assigned the writing of this opinion. I suspect that because the opinion has to do with standing and not with any of the merits, it's an issue that even among the justices is considered kind of a boring technicality. (laughs) So I don't think anyone was really lobbying hard to get to write this opinion. What did you think about Justice Alito's dissent? He called it the third installment in our epic Affordable Care Act trilogy. So I just think it shows how contentious the issue is on the court. I mean, I think it also sort of betrays that Justice Alito isn't really viewing this as a law issue, that this is, for some of the justices, the kind of policy issue that you might hear debated and argued about on the cable news shows, and that it plays on that level with the justices. And I certainly think Justice Alito's dissenting opinion reads that way. It reads like it's written for that kind of an audience rather than your standard Supreme Court opinion audience. Is the cloud over Obamacare gone now? Are the legal challenges behind us? Well, it's hard for me to say they're entirely behind us just because there is so much interest in it and therefore there is so much money available for lawyers and groups that want to challenge it. So it's possible we'll hear more of it. I would say that I think this is the Supreme Court telling people we really don't want to hear about this anymore. Go away. We'll see if they take that advice, Neil. That's Neil Kinkoff of the Georgia State University College of Law. Cases on abortion and gun rights are already on the Supreme Court's docket for next term. And now the justices are considering adding a third blockbuster case over whether to ban colleges from considering race in admissions. The case over whether Harvard College intentionally discriminated against Asian American applicants has been the most high-profile affirmative action case in years, drawing protests from both sides. It's an important time to be critical of Harvard and to look at how affirmative action policies have impacted or discriminated against Asian American communities. Chinese Americans support affirmative action. We see how important it is to recognize diversity. The justices are asking the Biden administration to weigh in on the Court of Appeals decision that upheld Harvard's policy of using race as a factor in admissions as a legitimate way to diversify its student body. Joining me is Susan Sturm, a professor at Columbia Law School. Let's start with the big question. What do you read into the Supreme Court asking for the Biden administration's view on the Harvard case? You can't fully predict what the justices are about. My sense is that, number one, they're trying to really be thorough about the consideration. So this is a step of considering the perspectives of the United States when the administration has changed. They get the opportunity to have the administration weigh in. That has both the appearance of full consideration at every step, and also some justices may be really interested in learning something. 
This could be a formality. It could indicate more of a willingness to actually accept the case. It could be that there are some justices who feel they would get some information that would help in their informal deliberation. So let's go back. Tell us about the First Circuit's decision. First Circuit's decision upheld the Harvard admissions approach, which considers diversity as part of a compelling interest. And the First Circuit found that Harvard did not take race into account in a way that ran afoul of the Equal Protection Clause, and that considering race as part of holistic review is consistent with the Constitution. That was rejecting the arguments of students for fair admission, suggesting that, as they are doing before the Supreme Court, number one, suggesting that any consideration of race would violate the Equal Protection Clause, and number two, that Harvard, in this case, considered the race of Asian American applicants in ways that demonstrated animus. The circuit rejected those arguments and really in a heavily factual analysis found that Harvard's admissions approach passed constitutional muster. So the plaintiffs here, the Students for Fair Admissions, are outright asking the Supreme Court to overturn the landmark 2003 Grutter case. Yes, they are. And part of the reason that there's serious concern about the decision to accept cert is that this is a case that's relatively soon after that endorsement of Grutter. And the facts are fairly strong in this case in Harvard's behalf and have been so found both by the trial court and by the First Circuit. So there is a concern that with the change in the composition of the court, that if the court were to accept cert, that that might signal a willingness to either cut back dramatically the circumstances under which colleges and universities can explicitly consider race or to eliminate that consideration completely. And this would be a deeply problematic decision on the part of the court. Why I'm curious about the court asking the Biden administration for its input is that it seems pretty clear that the Biden administration is going to disagree with the position the Trump administration took supporting this lawsuit because the Biden administration has already dropped the Yale lawsuit that the Trump administration brought? It's a good question. And again, it's difficult to know whether the request is to really get updated views on the part of the government that will then inform a reconsideration internally to the court. That could be one signal. Another signal is just the interest of thoroughness. And I think Chief Justice Roberts is one who is interested in conveying an idea of legitimacy on the part of the court, even as it might be an activist court that's really cutting back on the court's role in affording racial justice. So this could be a process. You see, we've offered every opportunity at every step of the way. And this is a circumstance under which we still find it appropriate to change, to step back on what's called stare decisis which is upholding settled precedent, or it could be an effort to really seriously think about whether this is a time and a place to open up this, this, these questions about the propriety under the Constitution, as the court reads it, of taking race into account. So it was just in 2016, I believe, that the court reaffirmed the consideration of race 
in college admissions, but that was by a four to three vote, and it's a really different court now. Tell us what the court decided in 2016 and how it's different now. The court decided in 2016 that, first of all, uh, reaffirmed that diversity is a compelling interest, uh, which is what's required to uh, take race into account under the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, that holistic review is warranted and permitted under the Equal Protection Clause, uh, and that higher education institutions continue to be entitled to deference, given that they are the ones who are the best judges of the academic requirements, but that courts will give a, a searching review uh, to how that judgment is exercised and that there needs to be um, an evidence-based justification for taking race into account. So all of that was upheld and reaffirmed by the court in 2016, as you said, uh, in this 4-3 decision. So on that court, the three justices who were in dissent are still on the court. That's Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. But Two of the justices who were in the majority are no longer on the court. That's, of course, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Anthony Kennedy, who retired. So the court now is really different from what it was then. Do we know how the three new justices regard taking race into consideration in admissions? There are some indications from their prior decisions that these new justices have embraced this kind of colorblindness approach that looking at race as uh, something that cannot be taken into account at all. Having said that, the configuration of the court is different, and I think there also is the possibility that what this means for the center of the court is that there may be a concern about thinking about stare decisis, namely the upholding of precedent in a situation in which the world has not changed except for the composition of the court. So even though we have new justices, it's not a foregone conclusion that that will mean that the justices that were in the dissent in the 2016 opinion will then view this as a time to really cut back on or retract from a well-established precedent. And there are examples of the chief justice, for example, upholding a decision that he might personally disagree with, but that is clear precedent for which there is no established basis for cutting back. So we do have three new justices, at least two of whom might be very willing to take a radical approach to constitutional interpretation and to a more activist approach that reflects their own views of the Constitution. I don't think that tells us how the court would actually rule. I think there's some possibility that there would be a cutting back, but not an overturning of a precedent with this new majority. I want to talk a little bit about Edward Blum, who leads the Students for Fair Admissions. He was also behind the lawsuit behind the Shelby County decision, which curtailed voting rights. Is he a one-man activist, or is this a vast organization? We have to give him credit. He's been a very effective um, as a small organization that has uh, been able to 
in in part because of the change in the politics of of the nation and the election of Donald Trump and the shift in the judiciary uh, that has followed uh, because of the judges that uh, that uh, former President Trump appointed, uh, that, that he's been able to really leverage a small amount of resources to have a big effect. And part of what he's done is really use the court system to compensate for the fact that he is a small organization, uh, that uh, th- there isn't a sense that, that this is a, uh, a large, you know, populist movement. There have been very wealthy people who have financed his organization so that they they can uh, marshal uh, legal resources to, to fight this battle um, and uh, so he's been he has been able to be quite effective marshaling the resources legal resources heavily financed uh, by wealthy uh, contributors uh, and then using uh, the, the the shift in the in the composition of the court to have really outsized impact. So if you consider that there's no split in the circuits that the Supreme Court has to resolve, and the court is already going to be considering next term the controversial issues of abortion and gun rights, what would be your guess as to whether or not the justices will take this case? I think it's really anybody's guess as to whether the court will take this. I think that this depends in part on the appetite of the the four justices to, as you've indicated, place the court smack in the middle of the most polarizing and controversial issues of our time, and to do that in a situation when there would be no question that were the court to dramatically cut back on or overturn the consideration of race in admissions, that the court would be taking a radical activist stance that is contrary to stare decisis. So the question is, does the court have an appetite for that with new justices on the bench and with these other issues that the court will also be facing? And it's hard to say because we have this new composition of the court and that question about how the court is going to construct its role and its legitimacy with the populace is up for grabs. The law in this area is going to really get made on the ground. And the biggest concern that I have is that whatever the Supreme Court decides, that higher ed institutions and others will abdicate responsibility for dealing with issues of race in a way that outside of the judiciary have really engulfed the nation. There's a risk of the court system becoming even more out of touch with the realities of our time and the demands of the national racial reckoning that we're facing. Uh, And so I really hope the court does not take this case for all the reasons we discussed. And I really would urge higher education leaders and the lawyers counseling them to recognize that this is an area where law will be made in the day-to-day decisions of higher education institutions as much as by the Supreme Court. Thanks for being on the show, Susan. That's Susan Sturm, a professor at Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. 
Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.